Bruja, a.k.a. Bruce Riley from Voters Organized to Educate. And today we have a very exciting show, uh, not the least because of who's on it, but the topic is one that I think that we need to talk quite a bit of, more about here in Louisiana. And so I've um, invited some folks on and uh, we'll, we'll let them introduce themselves, how they got into this work. And But the topic is crimmigration. And so, Rosemary, why don't we start with you? Rose, what is it that you kind of do in this realm and how did you get into uh, this work around immigration and detention? And give us just a little, little backstory to get us in here. Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Rose Murray. I'm a direct services attorney with the Southeast Immigrant Freedom Initiative of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, I got into the immigration field um, in 2017 um, after Trump was elected, and I first worked with um, my colleagues who are here today, Omedo and Al at Catholic Charities of New Orleans on asylum and special immigrant juvenile cases. Um, and I then transitioned to doing work for people who are de detained or imprisoned by ICE in immigration detention centers in Louisiana in 2018. So I've been doing that for four years. Um, and uh, when I started, there were two detention centers in Louisiana holding, um, I think the capacity was somewhere around 1,500 or so for each detention center, one in Gina, Louisiana, one in Pine Prairie. And um, since I have been doing this job, that has exploded to um, currently nine places in Louisiana where ICE is detaining people and one in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. So, Olmedo, you're, uh, you're from originally from Tejas. Yes, sir. See, and... Uh, it's funny we've got a little little two lane law uh, kind of <laughs> graduate thing. Wait, so what year did you graduate, Olmedo? Twenty ten. Twenty ten. Rose, you graduated in twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. And Al Page. I graduated in twenty fourteen. Which I should know because she is a classmate of mine. <laughs> <laughs> but it just so happens that I do know some really talented and special people. I am not just having a little friend for all here. But Omero, tell us a little bit more uh, about how you got into immigration issues. And I can imagine, um, you know, maybe you've got some some stories from Texas uh, that, that kind of play into this work that you do now here in Louisiana. Not as much from Texas as from the Midwest. Okay. Um, so I'm the legal director at ISLA, Immigration Services and Legal Advocacy. And we, at ISLA, we primarily focus on representing detained immigrants. Um, Al and I started ISLA in 2018 after, you know, as Rose said, Trump was elected and um, immigration detention in Louisiana exploded. Mm -hmm. And so we started it before the explosion happened um, and then it just took off. Mm -hmm. And so um, basically there's us and CFI that do pro bono representation of immigrants, detained immigrants in Louisiana. But to get into how I got into it, um, I went to law school kind of with the whole, like this is a tool in the social justice toolbox kind of thing. Like mm -hmm. I grew up, my mom was a migrant worker. We moved around the Midwest a lot. And 
in that time, there were these groups of attorneys that would come out to the fields or to the, you know, the housing spaces that they had for us and give presentations on like DV, immigration, car accidents, landlord tenant issues, basically any like random little thing. And they would do like these little skits and whatnot about it. And I was like, oh, attorneys can be useful. Um, and that's something like stuck in my brain as a kid. And then also as a child of an immigrant, it's either, you know, if you decide to go into school and are good at school, you kind of, the two things that society puts there is like a doctor or attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not the greatest at sciences and I love to argue. Therefore, attorney was, that one made sense. Um, and then when I came here and I came to law school at Tulane, that first summer I interned with Catholic Charities New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And at that time they were doing detention work. They were part of the legal orientation program, which is a know your rights presentation in the detention centers. And so I didn't know exactly what I wanted to go into, but when I started doing that work, I was like, oh yeah, this is going to work. Um, you weren't like planning on being like a corporate lawyer in New York City or anything? I mean, I was definitely going to be big law. Yeah, that was that was going to go with name, name, and name. That was always going to be my thing. Um, no, that was <laughs> never really on the on the front end. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then when I graduated was 2010, soon after the 2018, I mean, the 2008 um, collapse. So jobs weren't all that great. I spent the first like six months doing some contract work with a criminal defense firm. And then I got hired by Catholic Charities Baton Rouge, who had the actual contract for the legal orientation programs. Mm -hmm. And I was doing Know Your Rights. I did four years of detention work through Catholic Charities Baton Rouge. Then I took the job doing the children's program with Catholic Charities New Orleans. And then we started East Lab in 2018. And so it's a focus on detention issues because, like Rose said, there's this huge expansion that's happened in Louisiana mm-hmm. connected with criminal justice reform. From yeah, we, we emptied out all the jails so they could fill them back up with uh, <laughs> people from, you know, sent sent from the border. I mean, yeah. like, what the heck, you know? And I think that's, you know, another reason I wanted to, to get you guys on on this show and, you know, and, and share with the listeners you know, there really is this kind of whack-a-mole to mass incarceration. And it's really important for us to try to, you know, kind of cover it with a blanket and push the whole thing down. Um, but of course, we got to deal with the the um, industry yeah. that it represents uh, across the state and, you know, for some place across the country. Um, but give us, uh, you know, t- take me through a case and also, you know, share with our people, like, why folks, you know, are relying on just a few of y'all to cover, like, all the legal services that are needed. So to cover the legal services is in immigration, immigration proceedings are technically civil mm-hmm. in nature, um, even though same same detention centers, they just painted out a new sign and now it's somehow civil even same chains, same everything is still there. And because it's civil, you're not entitled to an attorney. Mm-hmm. You have the right to an attorney, but if you cannot afford one, one will not be provided for you. And so you've got folks that are being detained in these rural locations throughout Louisiana. So from here, it's between, from New Orleans, it's between three to five hour drives to get to- Can the I just pause and ask the, the, the you know, the non-lawyer, yes. but wannabe lawyer in me is like, okay, so have, like, how recently has that been fought that this is civil, even though I'm being held in a, in a cell for, you know, years on end potentially? 
Um, Rose might have better knowledge about the litigation behind that. I don't, I mean, I know they, they can, people continuously bring it up as an issue and it just gets thrown out. And from cases, particularly behind, in front of the current makeup of the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. um, that like the, the rights of immigrants keep on being eroded, eroded more and more. Yeah, because I mean, some of these things and using the 90 MS jury issue as an example, mm-hmm. I mean, people brought that to court year after year after year. And then at some point it became sort of ripe. But part of that ripeness was our ballot initiative being a statewide issue. But I do think, you know, for instance, around immigrant detention and, and, and you guys know four billion times more than I, but it seems to me that I would guess the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s immigrant detention was a little bit different than it is now. There really wasn't immigrant detention in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, it kind of started in the late 80s, mm-hmm. um, grew throughout the 90s, and then in the in the 2000s was where it really kind of took off. Yeah. So it's been more of a fairly recentish development when it comes to actual detention issues for immigration. The entire system was different pre-9-11. Yeah. So with 9-11, the system switched from being under INS to being under the Department of Homeland Security. And so you've got this shift in the system that led to more strict rules and more detention um, around immigration issues. Mm-hmm. So Rose, thinking of, uh, you know, you're with a, you're with a big a big group there, SPLC, you know, and I understand sometimes, uh, you know, different children get fed differently. Um, so, so I don't know, like, I guess what I'm, I'm getting at is like, where does like the immigration issue and immigrant detention fit in the larger SPLC kind of uh, mosaic here? And, and, and what kind of work are you guys doing in, in other parts of the country? Sure. Um, so, Within SPLC, there are different departments um, that do different things, like the Intelligence Project monitors, um, like white supremacist, white nationalists. We have, you know, comms, Learning for Justice, uh, the Civil Rights Memorial Center, and then the legal department and the legal department, you know, this may be evolving, um, but currently has different thematic subgroups. So my program is situated within the Immigrant Justice Project of the legal department, um, and we have our our own deputy legal director. And so part of the practice group focuses on sort of broader impact litigation um, around issues for immigrant workers, asylum and border policy. Um, You know, we have some policy folks working in D.C. on on immigration policy matters. Um, And my program focuses exclusively, exclusively on providing direct services and direct legal representation to people detained in ICE detention centers in Louisiana and Georgia. Um, And we also have formed a habeas committee sort of between the two sides of the immigrant justice uh, practice group. And so the habeas committee is working in for, for people who are detained by ICE in Florida, Georgia, and Louisiana. But we have colleagues as well in Mississippi, Alabama. Um, you know, we have colleagues working on, you know, racially motivated traffic stops. We've brought cases about that. And as well, we have 
you know, litigation. So, uh, we have one case between the two sides on access to counsel in immigration detention centers in Georgia and Louisiana. Um, we have a case on the quote unquote voluntary work program of detention of detention centers um, where people quote unquote voluntarily um, work and essentially um, do all of the labor that keeps the entire prison or detention center running uh, for a dollar a day. Um, so very similar, if not no differently than. Uh, you know, state incarcerated people or federal incarcerated people. I mean, right. is the, from from your from your um, you know work and experience in Louisiana, is there any difference between being detained uh, on an immigration hold, a civil commitment, so to speak, and being, let's say, uh, you know, doing time for uh, breaking and entering, like in in one of the jails? Is there? I mean, is there? Are you just like? Are you at least in a different wing of different block pod of the building or? And to me, it's a replica. The, the immigration detention system is a replication of the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. It's the same players, it's the same people. And as we've seen here in Louisiana, with this criminal justice reform where it emptied out some of those jails mm -hmm. and those jails immediately got repopulated with immigrants, it was the same players, right? Mm -hmm. so, who was the warden before is now the facility administrator. Mm -hmm. um, and so you've got these same players, same guards who used to be the guards at the other place, now the guards at yeah. this new place, same facility, same building. Right. The treatment is generally the same. There's you know segregation units, there's disciplinary um, hearings, which don't have any real um, hearing aspect to it. Mm -hmm. um, People have to pay to contact their family members. People have to pay to have phone calls, to use the tablet for all the benefits. They work for a dollar an hour. Some folks are not allowed to work because they're classified as like high risk, high or, risk or what, yeah. And so they don't get the privilege of working. Um, I know this is audio, so the, a lot of that is in quotes. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there were some air quotes happening there. Um, at least Rose, like, I think you said, like, quote, unquote, right? <laughs> so Rose does her own, like, audio air quotes. Omero, not so much. Yeah, it's a little more problematic on my end. Uh, so, you know, the, you know the, the, the prison law guy in me is thinking, like, so... What's the where is the law at in terms of conditions of confinement or access to medical care that sort of thing uh, with these civil commitments? Rose, <laughs> I know you've done a lot of research and work on that. So, um, yeah, there's a it's it's not good. Um, if if I could piggyback onto your your previous question, sort of flow into that. So you know. Everything that Omidal was describing, um, you know, at, at Pine Prairie and LaSalle Gina, it's wholesale just a, a literal prison that now only that incarcerates people detained by ICE. And as Omidal was describing, there's it's just a it's a copy paste or a change in titles mm. of the same people who are running it as a prison um, at Pine Prairie. 
there, and I think a Gina too, they're still using the old prison jumpsuits that people have to wear. So, you know, you get, if you're lucky, like you get your standard issue sort of like underclothing that you get maybe two of per week and it gets to be washed weekly. And then you get your, your jumpsuit over top that is, is washed less frequently. And at Pine Prairie, it still says Pine Prairie Correctional Center, mm-hmm. um, from when it was actually a prison. I don't know if it's the same exact contractors. I'm not familiar with the history of the contractors, but geo group runs, um, Pine Prairie and LaSalle. That's the same prison contractor. That's the same contractor that runs prisons and they run it in the same way. You know, they refer to staff and the telephone systems refer to people as inmates um you know there's count so that um you know speaking expanding um what i'm talking about more generally to immigration detention in general across different um centers count happens all the time it often is a reason that you don't get to have your legal phone call with someone mm-hmm. um well, and to clarify for for some people during count time, folks get locked down for an extended period of time so they can make sure that everyone is exactly there and double, triple, quadruple checked, cleared. And then, of course, even though the whole process may only take 20 minutes, perhaps, you know, count time can be, you know, locked down for about an hour and a half or shift change or something. Right. Shift changes. People. Okay, man. Times where they're like in count and they can't come up with the count properly Oh yeah, because they've lost, they don't know where somebody is. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Transportation. When, when in, in the case that people are brought to immigration court, um, everyone is shackled hands and feet. Uh, Oftentimes I'll have clients come and do a legal visit with me who are shackled in one way or another hands or feet. Um, And the medical system, Uh, I have some experience working with a client at Louisiana State Penitentiary, so I was making visits up there, I think, for the better part of a year and a half or two years, and and sort of with that being my um, point of comparison, you know, the system for requesting medical care is much the same. You uh, Nowadays, it's on tablets. When I first started in Louisiana, it was actually on pieces of paper, so you're supposed to write up a request. Quest. Nowadays, it's on a it's on a tablet to uh, that's supposed to be overseen by a case manager who's a contract an employee of the contractor at the detention center, um, and also it's maybe supposed to be seen by the ICE official, your deport your assigned deportation officer from ICE. And unfortunately, a large number of the requests for medical care just get ignored and go unheeded unless someone is really savvy in advocating for themselves and and really like brings it up many times but even then uh, the officials have no problem ignoring ignoring your request for medical for months and um i've worked as omido said i've worked a lot on conditions issues and we've had uh, hundreds of people report to us over over the last four years in Louisiana, um, pretty serious medical conditions that go untreated. And, you know, sometimes we file complaints or cases about it, but it will range from hypertension to one of my clients had uh, 
hepatitis that he actually developed in the detention center um, that became so severe. He, 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 we actually, in some cases, were able to get an outside physician consulting in. And so, you know, in some of our cases where we're trying to help someone advocate for medical care, um, we, we have them assessed by an outside medical doctor um, who recommends a course of care that's rarely followed, you know, like specialists, um, visits to, to specialists. A, sorry, do you, have to, do you have to pay a fee to request a uh, doctor visit in immigrant detention? No, you don't have to pay a fee. Um, but when, when it happens in person, you have to do it in the legal visit room, which is a cubicle in a larger, in, in some, some of these places, is a cubicle in a larger intake room where sometimes up to 70 or 80 people are just hanging out or being processed in or being processed out. And there's a window. Uh, we've, uh, we've asked for this to happen in like an actual sterile, sanitized in the medical wing of the facility and, and it's, it's refused. Um, so we, we just, we're, we're always finding that more often than not, the, the appropriate course of care is not, uh, is not followed, particularly when we're able to get an outside physician, um, making recommendations and, and usually that's not followed. Um, so Oftentimes, if, if someone needs like advanced care, some kind of advanced or specialized care that involves an outside specialist other than the facility doctor um, or surgery or something like that, they're told that they, they have to wait for, for months and they're told that the expense has to be approved by ICE. Um, we have folks in there who have received um, radiation treatment and come back or, or, or have gotten surgery in connection with like some severe terminal or chronic diagnoses and have come back uh, with, the, with the doctor explicitly recommending that they be released because they're not going to be able to keep their wound sanitary enough in the conditions of ICE detention. And, and sure enough, the condition, you know, spirals out and worsens and um, it's sad to say but if I think someone's health has deteriorated so much to the point that they might die that's when you see a quick release mm. um, we've had people hospitalized post-surgery um, and shackled to their hospital beds uh, and ice has denied their close family members you know their kids or their spouse to come and visit them in the hospital right after surgery mm. um, we've had folks who are basically in what they view and correctly view as conditions of, of punitive solitary Military confinement in the medical wing, um, which ICE and its contractors take the strong position that that's medical segregation and it's not the same, but, you know, they're not given special treatment. You know, our client who uh, had to have hip surgery and was supposed to be getting physical therapy every day to recover immediately after his hip surgery, he was put back in ICE detention. And he said, he wished that he could be back in his dorm because his dorm mates actually cared about him and were, were more likely to help provide him with the physical therapy he needed than the nurses at the ICE detention center. Um, the extent of which they would, was his physical therapy. They would just pass by his cell once or twice a day and yell, you need to walk. Mm-hmm. Um, another layer of complication of, of requesting like medical treatment and ICE detention centers is, 
a lot of people who are detained by ICE, English is not their first language. And a lot of people who are detained by ICE don't speak English. Um, some, you know, don't read or write, period, much less in English. Some have particular access needs. Um, some are deaf, uh, blind, don't speak. Um, and, and really, we don't see any <laughs> little to, to no accommodations for, for any of, of this. There's little to no language justice in the majority of places that we're working. You might have one person on staff that speaks Spanish to some degree, but people are people who are detained by ICE speak a, a wide variety of different languages. Um, that, that also stands in the way of, of communication. So if they're lucky enough to be able to see someone at medical, maybe they a translator line is called, maybe not, um, which just, or uh, oftentimes they have uh, friends in the dorm, um, ICE and, and their contractors rely on um, bilingual people yeah. who are detained to just do all the translating for their friends. Um, but it's a pretty- has no, uh, no language component to it. It has a language component as it relates to like people being deaf, mute, but not necessarily foreign language. Foreign language. Yeah. Because I mean, as we speak, the, um, you know, the Angola medical officials and the Department of Corrections are in federal court today trying to explain to our comrades, uh, PJI, in the Lewis v. Cain case, that we fixed everything, despite this, you know, uh, hundred and something page ruling saying how you violated the ADA, you violated the Rehabilitation Act, you uh, violated the Eighth Amendment uh, in so many different ways. And you know what, what you're, you know, just describing, Rose. You know, basically, you know, is a lot of like prison medical care across the country. And then, of course, one would guess Angola, where there's a high percentage of elderly folks. It's just going to be you know, through the roof and the fact there's over 5,000 people too. But I'm just wondering if, if that is like a, a real um, weak leg of the stool around immigrant detention, where it's like you, you, you're not giving someone the option of taking care of themselves. And then you're also not treating them either. And I'll add, yes. And I'll add another layer to that, which also goes into like the, bad attorneys who end up representing some folks is when these cases end and they tend to run really quickly, somebody's immigration legal case tends to run pretty quickly in detention. When it ends, the person gets physically removed from the country. Mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, you serve your time and then you get released back into the community right. and you can go speak with an attorney, collect, and not again, mm -hmm. obviously to pit issues against issues. They're both terrible situations. But there's less access on the back end yeah. to bring up the issue. Totally. And, you know, obviously from the incarcerator standpoint, unless you did have a heart or a feeling of justice or anything like that, like, why wouldn't you refuse to treat somebody for whatever it may be and then just deport them and deport the problem away and be like, well, you can go die in the airport tarmac in some other country. Yeah. And you don't have to deal with it as a backlash because... Or is that person going to reach out and bring yeah. a lawsuit? And who, what attorney is going to deal with it from abroad? international litigation and then try to prove something? Yeah. So really, we are relying upon our commitment to civil rights, social justice, equality, um, and some level of standard of care. Uh, but so, what percentage of people 
And feel free to tell me if it's five, one, or zero um, in the immigrant detention you know, network that, that you're focused on uh, have been accused of a crime other than crossing the border. Under the current administration, that number is going up. Mm-hmm. And I would say under the previous administration, we were probably, at least locally, we were probably talking about something like 10 to 15 percent because the significant majority, somewhere in the 80 to 90 percent of folks that were being detained in Louisiana and Mississippi were people who were showing up at the border, coming to the U.S. for the first time. Basically walking into detention. Yeah, seeking admission and being sent to detention centers in Louisiana. Were they given a choice at the border? Like, did they know, like... Look, you can either turn around or you can go into an American prison and wait it out and and, and roll the dice. No, that's not really the way it works. Okay. Like you you show up and they take you in. Okay. Um, And then once they would take you in, it became a roll of the dice because if you ended up in under the new, what's called the New Orleans Ice Field Office, which Mm -hmm. is Louisiana and Mississippi for detention purposes, um, you had an what was it, Rose, 84% denial rate for parole, which is to get released on, or it went up to like 98, I think. Before the litigation, it went, so um, yeah, pre-Trump, the release on parole, which is basically ICE's discretion to just let you out. That's like Um, though, right? Not necessarily, like for for our listeners who think of parole as something that you finish out your sentence you know, on the street after, in this case, parole is more like a bail where it's like pending mm-hmm. result, the resolution of your case, we're going to let you, you know, be out on the street. Yeah. It's like a bail, but they, it, it's no cash. Right. So it was, you know, reco- being released on recognizance. Gotcha. In the old days, so pre-Trump, the release rate was 75%-ish and um, yeah, it dropped to near zero in 2017 and that was the subject of litigation brought by SPLC. However, if you got detained in New Mexico or Los Angeles or you were sent to, you know, somewhere in Florida, the rates were much higher for release. Mm. So it very much became field office by field office on how hard they decided to implement mm. the Trump language approach to detaining immigrants. Um, and at that time, the majority of our clients were folk, and the majority of people detained in Louisiana, Mississippi, were from were people that were coming in from the border. And right now it still is, but it's shifting mm. um, because under the current administration, those folks are getting released. They're getting released fairly easily. It's fairly procedural. Like you come in, you have your interview, you prove that you're afraid or you do the the threshold proof that you're afraid of returning and they let you out. There's a direct line um, between folks who are immigrants who are serving particularly federal um, sentences being sent directly from the federal prison to immigration detention in Louisiana. Okay, so after they finish a, a criminal sentence, Correct. and now they're looking, those are like some guys that I knew, like in my experience, Im- immigrant law, immigration law was guys that were, you know, they had a detainer, they had a hold, yeah. and they would finish up their sentence, whether it be one year's or even a life sentence, and then 
there'd be uh, the, the deportation process. Yeah. And then for you know several of them, about five or six, I was their lawyer for all the same <laughs> reasons you just talked about, um, you know, not having a, a, a mandatory lawyer and then trying to file um, asylum uh, claims. One of my friends was um, from uh, uh, Angola, the, the country. Yeah. <laughs> and there was a civil war at the time. And another one uh, was from... Uh, uh, Cambodia, where they didn't have a, there was no treaty yeah. um, for, to, to bring them. Another one's from Cuba. He was actually part of the Muriel boat lift yeah. and had been locked up ever since. And he, I don't even know if he had any formal charges. It was a very weird situation. Um, but yeah, so I mean, now we've got, we've got it to this like science of immigrant detention. And we've got what's called the institutional something program. I forget what the second word is in it. Um, where they will have the deportation hearing in the last like six months of somebody's sentence. So as somebody's sentence is ending, mm -hmm. they will video you into one of the immigration courts in, New in Louisiana so that you can be ordered deported while still in criminal detention or in criminal prison while so that when you get you finish your sentence, they just send you to be literally mailed, like mm -hmm. flown out of the country. Um, which creates even more issues about access to attorneys because your federal defender can't defend you on your criminal case. I mean, on your immigration case, mm -hmm. the attorneys who work in that area don't necessarily want to represent you in front of a court that's... So right now we have, for example, in Aliceville in um, Alabama, mm -hmm. there's a lot of cases that are being transferred where folks are being transferred when they finish their cases in Aliceville to Gina, Louisiana but their hearings are also being held remotely from Gina, Louisiana. So if there are attorneys in Alabama who could represent the person detained there, mm -hmm. they don't necessarily want to go to Gina, Louisiana right. to do the representation. Wow. So you, you end up creating this additional level of access. Mm -hmm. um, and one other thing with the medical stuff, we have a couple of clients who were given compassionate release from their criminal, from their federal criminal um, sentence based off of either COVID or medical conditions or whatever. Mm -hmm. But then ICE puts a detainer on them and picks them up and brings them to immigration detention and won't release them because they're subject to what's called mandatory detention because of the criminal charge they right. have or the criminal conviction they have. Right. Yeah. So. Mandatory detention is a huge issue. And it, I mean, I'm saying this in more of the practical sense than the the technical legal sense, but people are essentially being subjected to double jeopardy. You know, you have, I have a client right now who uh, was convicted on three counts of um, possession with intent to distribute of something like 165 pounds of marijuana. Um, nice. they, they said it <laughs> in kilograms, I was having a really hard time remembering the kilograms, so I just made it into something that I could understand. Um, and possession, although not use or threatened use, just possession of a firearm in connection with the drug trafficking crime, that was, he, he, he was convicted on a plea deal in 2011 mm -hmm. he served eight years in federal penitentiary which he described as having conditions far above and beyond those of the three detention centers that he's been in um under his time his last uh 
two years being detained by ICE. Mm -hmm. I think it, I think it may be coming up on three. Um, so, okay. He, he has actually never been convicted of any violent crime. He had, uh, he had a few, um, convictions before the big ones in 2011. Um, I think 20 years ago, he was convicted of something having to do with like a forged check or a forged instrument. Um, one, a charge of a DUI that I don't even know if that resulted in a conviction. Um, and then one other possession of marijuana crime. So like a, a fully nonviolent criminal history. Now, like here he is, those convictions were in 2011 um, when he was in his early 30s. Now he's in his mid 40s. When he went into prison, his daughter was two years old. Now she's 13. Um, and so part of his plea deal with the prosecutors back in 2011 was um, he'll serve eight years and then he'll get a five-year probation. We have all the paperwork. The terms are really clear. Um, he was you know, released from prison in 2019 under that um, or order of supervised release. And there's a whole bunch of conditions he's subject to lots of supervision and monitoring, drug tests, um, like basically if he steps out the, the slightest bit, like he will, he'll be incarcerated again on his criminal conviction. Um, but I took him immediately into ICE custody where he's been in worse conditions of confinement. Um, right now he's in a county jail in Florida where yes, they are in a different pod, quote unquote. So they're not, they're not like intermingled and sharing a dorm or meals with folks on the criminal side, but folks on the criminal side have it better because they can work, they can have educational offerings, they can take classes um, on the immigration detention side of that facility. He, um, there, there's, he can't do anything without money. Like you need money to buy like dominoes or yeah. um, to buy a book or to watch media or play games on a tablet. Um, so he, according to him, he sits all day with nothing to do. And the this is plea agreement before Padilla. I'm sorry. What year is Padilla? 2012, 2013, 2011, 2011, 2012. Just curious if, uh, if Padilla factors in at all to his agreement if now he's got this sort of mandatory detention? Uh, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but So, I mean, as uh, going back to the sort of separation thing, you know, I, I should just add that, you know, I find that to be a big sort of like, like silly distraction that like incarcerators use as some sort of like proof that we're like treating people differently in some way, you know, as somebody who has been incarcerated with people who were awaiting federal charges, awaiting nonviolent charges, awaiting, you know, serial killing, you know, awaiting everything, including the, you know, people like shuffling through and different sorts of detainers and stuff. Like in the end, like a little bit of a melting pot is actually a good thing. Because you never know where, I mean, you talked about the bilingual, uh, you know, the value of the bilingual people. I mean, if if everybody, let's say, is coming from the border and never been in an English-speaking country, but as we know just from present company, you know, the idea that it'd be Americans who are, who are, are bilingual, like, that's potentially your lifeline, yeah. you know, and then not being able to even 
converse with with uh, with your captor is to me is like entirely brutal. Yeah, I think it was last year, last year or the year before. There was um, this one guy from Cameroon who's an attorney in Cameroon, mm. and he was prepping everybody's filings. Like he was working through. He filed so many appeals to the fifth. He filed appeals to the Board of Immigration Appeals. He was like doing people's parole requests in English, in English, because yeah. he's an English-speaking uh, man from Cameroon. And so he, mm-hmm. and so everyone was coming to him and like yeah. bringing him the stuff, and he was like prepping people's um, stuff. And then he got released, and so many people, everyone lost and, their lawyer. Yeah, because yeah. he became their lawyer. Um, what a, so what? What is kind of the general breakdown? I guess from like countries or languages in your in terms of Louisiana detention. It's been a rotation based off of who is coming because it's been so many people from the border, depending on who's coming from the border. So when we started in 2018, it was actually a lot of folks from Cuba. So it was majority Cubans. And then how are they? What was their sort of pathway here? Um, same as most fly from Cuba to, to anywhere, Mexico, oftentimes yeah. Mexico, sometimes Ecuador. Okay. Um, and then make your way up. Gotcha. But at the very end of the Obama administration, he got rid of the wet foot, dry foot policy. Mm-hmm. And so under Obama, even in those, even in that last like few months of the Obama policy, after he got the Obama presidency, after he got rid of the dry foot, um, wet foot policy, they weren't detaining folks who were from Cuba. Can you they explain were, for people what the dry foot, yes, wet foot policy Sorry is? about that. Um, for Cubans, we had a specific policy that if you were encountered in the water, so making your way to the U.S., but encountered in the water, mm-hmm. then you would be returned to Cuba. But if you were encountered in the U.S., if you showed up at a port of entry or crossed the border, and, um, and by a port of entry, I mean like bridges or official entry points to the United States, um, they would let you in. They would mm-hmm. give you the parole document. They would parole you in, let release you on your own recognizance, and let you go be with family. Mm-hmm. And we have a special rule for Cubans that if you've been here for a year or more, after having entered with some kind of status, you can become a you can become a resident. Why do we have a special rule for Cubans? Communism. Communism is terrible. We hate communists. So is it is so in in U.S. foreign policy eyes, is Cuba the only country where people um, sort of like deserve a chance to be free of their oppressive government? Or <laughs> it's the only country that has that special law in place mm-hmm. yes the Cuban, it's called the cuban adjustment act um but you know historically and if you look at cases when it comes to granting asylum it ends up being a lot of these countries right so china has mm-hmm. high grant rates for asylum because of communist issues mm-hmm. cuba has high grant rates um like you spoke earlier cambodia doesn't have a return um, treaty with the U.S. We don't send people back to Cambodia. Mm-hmm. We didn't used to send people back to Cuba. So there were a lot of folks, a lot of Cuban folks who would, even if they could fight their, their deportation, they just wouldn't. Because they're like, why am I going to stay detained if I'm not going to actually be deported? Yeah. So they would just take their deportation and then it would be on paper, but they couldn't physically be deported. So they'd be allowed to remain in the mm-hmm. country. Um so there, yes, that exists, and it's a lot of it is based off of foreign policy mm-hmm. and our approach towards foreign policy. We're seeing it play out right now with Ukrainians, right? Where mm-hmm. we, where the foreign- Ukrainians are like primarily 
like light skinned, right? Well, I mean that. Like very a light. Lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of the Cubans who initially came over were as well. Okay. <laughs> Just um, to state the obvious. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so we, to, to move back, we saw a lot of Cubans early on. And then we saw a lot of Cameroonians. There's a civil war going on in Cameroon right now between the French-speaking and English-speaking segments of the country. And so we saw a lot of Cameroonians coming to the border until they were starting to be sent to... And how are, how are Cameroonians overwhelmingly getting here? Were they flying to Mexico also? or um, Brazil okay. was usually the place. It was flying to Brazil and then making your way slowly wow. up. Yeah. You know, can I just... <laughs> let's all pause and, for a moment and just consider... Um, I don't know what the what the Google map says, but to make your way from Brazil to this country, you sound like a badass to me. You sound like somebody I want to like hang with, somebody I want to know, someone I might want to hire, someone I might want to work for. You know, like you ain't no lazy slacking, uh, you know, I mean, shit, we have people here that the power goes out. They can't figure out how to get milk. <laughs> You know, or the, there's a boil water advisory and they don't know how to handle it, like, Jesus. even though they got electricity. And we were talking about people that make their way across the world. Yeah. And we don't honor that in any way. Getting yourself out of a war zone, finding a way to get yourself across the ocean, and then working your way up the entire continent to get here. And we're excluding you. We're telling yeah. you, no, we don't want you. These are, like... It's funny because, like, no matter what van, what way you look at it, like what what visual you take, and for people that just look genetically, I want those people. <laughs> you're strong, you're smart, you're resourceful. Yeah. Like, isn't that the freaking American way? Isn't that like, I mean, it's the myth that we use. Yeah, yes, I feel like we work on. I mean, they sound more American than me, and I feel like I'm pretty American. Foster <laughs> care, you know, trailer park kid, all that. That's American prison. Um, and after having walked across or, you know, some combination of like buses, trains and walking across um, all these these perilous places and environments, um, you know, having to face robbers and predators um, who uh, people, you know, fording a river or, you know, well, encountering violence. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, people, comrades who they're traveling with, a lot of people, once they get here, have stories or even pictures of, like, those who died along the way that they were traveling with. It's incredibly treacherous. And then when they when they get here into immigration court, um, that some of the Louisiana immigration court judges, their favorite way to deny, particularly Cameroonian asylums, um, is to say, where's your passport? Um, where's your ID? Oh, it was lost along the way. It was stolen by these robbers, but here's a copy of it, or here's my Cameroon national ID card. Is just off the bat, immediately focus the majority of the asylum hearing on the fact that a person doesn't have their ID after everything they went through to get here and deny them, decide that they're just lying um, about their passport and using this as the basis to deny them for asylum. So that's that's the greeting that people get from the immigration court um, that they're brought to in chains from immigration detention, seeking asylum in this country. Wow. And what what so and what other what other types of scenarios are we looking at? So we're seeing right now we're seeing a lot of folks from Venezuela um, as well as Nicaragua 
because of the political issues going on there. Mm-hmm. Basically, you can look around the world, see where we're oftentimes the U.S. has been involved in yeah. creating destabilization, and then folks from there will be coming here. Well, it, it, you know, that's a, a great point. It's something that, that, you know, obviously a lot of um, a lot of people have a problem with U.S. interventions everywhere, you know, and, and you know, it's interesting that, that some of the people who are supportive of the militaristic in, mm-hmm. interventions are, are not so supportive of of that re- that sort of like refugee status or the, you know people like kind of flowing towards the Rome. That Venn uh, diagram looks like a pretty uh, yeah. solid circle. Yeah. <laughs> but so th- then the interesting thing is, so theoretically, you know, the American government is not big fans of the Venezuelan government. Correct. Therefore, if you were someone fleeing the Venezuelan government, wouldn't you be like our friends? You would think so. Okay. But then in court... The government, the Department of State, the Department of Homeland Security attorney, because they're while you're not entitled to an attorney, the government has an attorney arguing that you're lying and that you shouldn't be granted asylum. Um, that person will submit documentation and arguments contrary to the statements made by the president, to mm-hmm. the statements made by the Department of, uh, and by the Secretary of um, State. Mm-hmm. People who are arguing that these countries, you know, we. Don't, we disagree with them. They're repressive, etc. They'll submit. They submitted. They would. They used to submit documentation regarding the beautifully revamped Cuban Constitution and how wonderful it was, and how many more rights people were getting as a result of it. At the same time that the president was giving speeches talking about how terrible the Cuban government was and how this constitution was crap, and um, there was this. You have yeah, this double I can imagine the filings where it's like my filing is literally everything the president and others are saying. Yeah. Your filing is some like made up gibberish of uh, of your own interpretation. Yeah. Do they so so in terms of like your lying that you just said that like are they saying that someone is sort of like lying about their sort of personal facts or are they lying about sort of the conditions of their country? Both. Yeah. It depends on which angle they can take best, but they'll they'll do it about both. And it's the personal facts, it's you can't prove it, Mm -hmm. right? Like, we don't believe you because you said one random little thing that's off. Um, A case we had recently that went to the Fifth Circuit, the guy was from Cameroon, and he was saying he was arrested several times. And then he went on to repeatedly describe two arrests. Mm. And the judge denied, one of the denial bases was that she couldn't believe him because several, according to the dictionary, means more than two, and you said you were arrested several times, but then you only explained two. See, I would have thought it was two or more. And I think I'm a pretty smart guy as well in Jeopardy. So go figure. The yeah. wrong use of the word several. And that was what, like those little stupid things is mm-hmm. what they hooked themselves onto to say, you're not credible. And if you're not credible, I can't believe anything you said. How often is the, the situation like, look, kind of like a summary judgment type motion. Like, we're just going to assume everything you say is true. And yet you still don't qualify. Therefore, you're going to be gone. I don't think I've ever really had that situation with immigration judges. Um, There's time. No, there have been. There's been times where somebody is found credible. We Mm. believe you. Everything you're saying is true. We still don't think that right. Because that's only one level. Right. You still have to show that the harm that you've suffered or the Mm. harm you may suffer is sufficient Mm. to rise to the level of, air quotes, persecution. And so... You may be telling the truth. We may believe everything right. you're saying, 
but it still doesn't qualify. It's not enough. Yeah. And so basically, you know, we have a government that is saying whatever these secret police are doing these terrible things in these countries, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then you get not just one, but many people saying, I've been harmed in all these ways. I'm sure women are telling some terrible experiences. Men are telling terrible experiences, children. And yet here you have the actual survivors of, of this, you know, this harm that the country freely alleges all the time, right? And yet those survivors are not believed. I mean, it sounds a little bit like, um, you know, how many, how many un, uninvestigated rape claims are in New Orleans alone? I mean, it's just like, you know, not believing people and not even like going to the next level to try to find out if it's, if it's, you know, believable. I I remember watching one of your um, merits, asylum merits, cases on where um, the, the ICE attorney and the judge were, uh, and reading your briefs where they actually faulted the client for having experienced some similar attacks based on their a protected characteristic or their religion um, and said, well, I've, I've heard similar stories from people from this country. And it's like, yes, and that is actually corroboration but unfortunately you have some really hostile judges and you can look at their asylum denial rates which are you know between like 89 and 98 percent in this region where they're really like there's this attitude among uh, uh, ICE officials in this region and most of the immigration judges at least here come from the ranks of ICE attorneys mm. and there's a really prevailing attitude that countless um, ICE officers have told our clients here in Louisiana, it's our job to deport as many of you as possible. That's that's the unofficial mission statement of the ICE attorneys here in this region. And then they go on to be all the judges. And like, that's kind of their core belief that they're carrying into their position as an immigration judge. So they approach everyone with um, the like kind of this predetermined attitude to see everything as a as a lie and to find a way to deny or deport you unless you present some like kind of overwhelmingly over the moon incontrovertible volume of evidence. Do they ever on a very short timeline trying some and somehow collecting all this evidence from a cell in rural Louisiana? Mm-hmm. And sometimes from across the world, one, sometimes if you're in front of one particular judge, if you bring in media, that'll get you granted. Oh, yeah. um, he just does not want to have any negative media about yeah. it. And so but every time we've had media with us mm-hmm. for cases, those cases have been granted by that judge. Well, it is interesting how the sunlight um, can change things. That's yeah. that's a big principle of, of our work is really to, to shine the sunlight and get people engaged in their own system. Hence, even this conversation we're having now, I, you know, I've learned some things and, and I'm sure other people have learned quite a bit. Um, and I just have a couple more questions for you guys. One is, so, you know, clearly they set up these rules with this idea that some people would be eligible, right? And I'm, I'm thinking of like the, the retroactivity rule that the Supreme Court literally just said, well, nothing is retroactive. Now, Teague v. Lane doesn't matter. Uh, there are no watershed rules, right? And so they actually threw out this 
this loophole that just nobody could go through. So like, why even have the loophole? And that was in the non-amus jury issue. Um, but like, so you've got ICE whose job is, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, not just to deport, right? But to like, to to manage the system, right? Like the comings and goings, right? Um, the There's different, so there's a Department of Homeland Security and you've got three agencies within the department which is ICE, a border patrol, and then USCIS. USCIS deals with benefits, people who apply for citizenship, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Border patrol deals with the comings and goings, they're the customs. Right. And then ICE is the quote unquote right. police of it. But I, so the thing is like, so obviously as we know, like the prosecutor in you know American criminal law, their job is not just to convict, right? Their job is to to do justice, right? And so in some cases, that job would be to dismiss the charges, right? Uh, If they're being ethical and and all this stuff. And I'm just wondering if ICE is always trying to deport and not even pretending to let somebody in, arguably they're not actually following the codes that are their agency's codes, right? Because the codes create these exceptions and things that they should be at times supporting or facilitating. And so arguably there should be a few cases here and there where you guys aren't even needed. There should be. <laughs> but, so are, are we talking one or zero? Um, again, it depends on the administration. Under mm-hmm. under the current administration, they've gone back to something that we saw at the end of the last two years of the Obama administration, which is a lot of prosecutorial discretion. Mm. So if somebody fits in, doesn't fit within the priorities that the government has set, Mm -hmm. generally the government, the ICE attorneys are supposed to exercise discretion in those cases. So either not file the charges or dismiss the case, administratively close the case, Mm -hmm. agree to grant in those cases. Um, And so this is where the earlier question you asked about what percentage of folks that are detained have a previous criminal charge, Mm -hmm. that percentage is starting to increase because the focus and the priority is going is to be on on immigrants who have criminal charges. Mm -hmm. That's who you want to be detaining. That's who you want your resources to go towards. Mm -hmm. And so, as you know, Rose said earlier, it's this double jeopardy situation. You've gone to prison, you've done your time. And now you're going to immigration detention to be detained there while you try to fight to stay in the country. Yeah, that's insane. So, And the reason why this whole mandatory detention scheme, why won't let one out, is that they claim you're a danger. But the prosecutor in the criminal case agreed to a pre- plea bargain where you're supposed to be out right now. The yeah. client I was referring to, you know, not, not to hold people to a standard of perfection because that's not reasonable or fair either, but he had no disciplinary write-ups for the whole eight years in prison. And we brought all, we, we brought a habeas. Um, he normally under mandatory detention, you don't even get a bond hearing from the immigration judge. You're just locked in. And like, you know, the initial immigration court process can move quickly, um, often to people's detriment in terms of trying to collect evidence and the first stage of it. But God forbid you appeal. That's, you know, like that's why this particular client and he, it's the situation is not unique. This happened happening to thousands of people um, who have already done their time for their crime and 
uh, that he's th- coming up on three years. And for the entire last year, his appeal has just been sitting at the Board of Immigration Appeals, having been remanded from the circuit court. And it's just not moving. And no one can tell us when or how it's going to move. So he's he's just looking, staring down a road of indefinite detention while his daughter gets older and older for crimes for th- for mar- <laughs> crimes related to possession of firearm marijuana. The same exact conduct is of which is making white men rich right now in Colorado and California, right? Like marijuana, it's different year than 2011. So yeah. it's just, it's an, an ISIS, the reason for detaining him is dangerousness based on his past crimes. And there's, there's thousands of people in that situation. Yeah. I mean, I, I was going to ask, so there's, I mean, there's a couple of you know, from from a outsider standpoint, right? Like core connections with like immigration policy. One is you had touched on migrant workers, and then two, um, this drug war issue. And I, I think from a from a one side, there's this like keep the drugs out, including the people who bring them in. But then there's this other side, which is like people who live here do a lot of drugs <laughs> and some sell drugs, right? They so, only come in because people want that. Right. So so it, it seems to me we've got like a, a few different groups of people that are that are interesting in trying to learn more about um, like one being like what is the sort of structure of the migrant worker kind of programming nowadays. I know that Reagan, for instance, had a very supportive approach because a lot of his friends were getting rich off people picking uh, oranges and stuff. And then the other one is from the drug war standpoint, how many folks, um, you know, do we think are detained in the terms of like drugs at the border versus I've been living here my whole life and I got caught with some drugs. And I definitely know people that fit in the latter one. It's mostly the latter. Because if you at the border, you basically, you wouldn't have been detained. You would have been deported immediately. Um, or you would have been prosecuted federally. Right. And then, so at the border... Or even just you made it in here, but you were like a, you know, you're some kind of transporter, you know, okay. a trafficker or whatever, right? Yeah. Like, that. I mean, in my experience, at least, that's a very small percentage yeah. of folks that end up in detention longer term or mm-hmm. fighting their case. Because there's there's what's called the no-due process zone, which is a hun- within 100 miles of the border. If you're det- If you're stopped and you are believed to not be a citizen mm-hmm. there's a presumption to some extent there's basically a presumption of a lack of citizenship in that area yeah hey it's where i'm from um and so you're that process there you're not really entitled to much of a process it's it's basically a summer a summary summer, summer, summary I'm not exactly trying to say that <laughs> english is only my second first language um so there's a there's a really quick process it's an uh-huh. expedited process mm, in which you basically the the customs officer determines is this person a citizen or are they afraid to return to the country if they're mm-hmm. not a citizen and they're not afraid to return to the country they get deported immediately mm-hmm. without going in front of a judge without being able to claim or make any kind of argument mm-hmm. you're gone um, yeah. And so, well, as we know, too, like drugs are, are generally either coming from within the country or the ones that are coming in the country are coming at like levels of like plane and tanker. Yeah. Not they're like not individual people. In, yeah. yeah. They're not a Steve King's version of the kid with cantaloupe. Um, what do you say? Cantaloupe calves running across the desert with 
a backpack of weed or something. I'm like, how much is he going to do with that? Seriously. (laughs) So in the end, I'm making $2 an hour. (laughs) No, thanks. I just pulled up the um, statistics, the latest statistics from Syracuse University, um, which which, um, takes ICE data. Um, So according to data current as of May 7th, 2022, uh, 72% of people held in ICE detention have no criminal record. Many more have only minor offenses, including traffic violations. I I often run into this perception that everybody who's in ICE detention is there because they're super dangerous and a criminal. Mm -hmm. And that's almost, I can say that's almost never the case. So like, even if you do have a record, but there's also people being held like now, and this really fluctuates. um, And we had to bring a big old long lawsuit for parole, even to come back in Louisiana for people to be released on their own recognizance, regardless of whether they had a criminal record or not. Um, Nowadays, uh, because now they have to be issuing more paroles in this region and not just holding people for no reason other than to make, you know, to, to allow um, the detention center contractors to make, to turn a profit on filling the ice beds that nowadays ice ice officers are coming into the dorm of people who have recently arrived and saying like okay whoever can pay ten thousand dollars can leave on parole and they're actually setting ice bonds attached to these paroles that used to just be released on your own recognizance so it's it's yeah there are more people like without criminal convictions in the system getting out but if you if you're and it's it's arbitrary you know some Sometimes I'll have a client get lucky and their ice bond will be set at 1500 and their relatives will be able to scrape something together. But that number is going up and up and up. And there's really, it's super arbitrary. There's no rhyme or reason to it. So sorry, even if you have no criminal record, if you can't pay ice $10,000 for no good reason, like you're going to do the rest of your immigration proceeding and immigrate ice prison. So tell me the immigrant Immigration court judges are appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, the same as yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I oh, wish. They pay they pay hundred thousand dollars, they get the job as a bond. No, I mean, don't the ones that get appointed by the Senate and confirmed by the Senate also do that? Um they're 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 not even administrative judges, I don't think officially. They're technically administrative adjudicators. They're appointed by they're hired by and appointed by the attorney general. So they okay. go through the immigration court is within the the Department of Justice. Mm-hmm. And so there's a deputy attorney general who oversees the immigration system. And that attorney general assigns other folks to, you know, hire immigration gotcha. judges. So you go through USA jobs, do that whole kind of thing as to how to do the do they do they are you aware of any coming from the sort of like defense bar kind of like could Omero Lopez be a <laughs> or Allison Page um, the immigration judge yes um it, under the current administration there's been a there's been some guidance to start hiring folks from the private bar mm-hmm. and there's a question there of like you know chicken or egg type of thing like okay so they're going to start hiring people from the private bar 
are people from nonprofits and people that are really fighting it going to start applying? Mm -hmm. Or is this going to be private attorneys, a lot of whom also don't have the greatest view necessarily Mm -hmm. towards immigrants? Um, Like how, kind of like if we look at it on the criminal side, the um, the bench or flipping the bench situation, is that really going to happen? Are you going to get advocates to apply? Or... Is it going to well, be more of a middle of the road? I definitely have taken part in a few recent uh, attempts to to get um, you know some advocates on the bench, um, and uh, and you know, shout out to my friend Mirna Perez, a, uh, a a fellow Tejana who is now on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. I went to her investiture last week and. Uh, Senator Chuck Schumer gave some nice, nice words about, you know, the what, what we're trying to do here in America and, you know, the story of Myrna herself. And it was actually inspiring and to be in. I've never been in a courtroom and had such positive uh, feelings towards <laughs> like the system. Right. So it was actually great. And even just to see the whole Second Circuit, like the the emotion that they had towards Myrna, um, you know, and I. Of course, she's like one judge amongst many, and there are, as we know, some decent uh, federal judges across the the, the spectrum. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely got to be part of the overall strategy, right? Is to kind of change the face of of those decision makers. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think one of one of the other things that in immigration makes it a little bit more problematic is because it is this federal hiring process and detention particularly detained, the judges that handle the detained cases are considered um, essential. And so their hiring is expedited. Mm. It's really difficult. The, the response from the government is usually, it's really difficult to hire anyone not already in the system. Oh, great. So, well, it's a, a great excuse. <laughs> you know? Because they, they can't leave it open for too long yeah. because they need to be processing these cases really quickly. And so it makes it to where the system doesn't allow mm. for external forces to really come into the detention settings. Mm. Um, most of the people that have been hired from the private bar or from the defense side have gone, or I think maybe all of them have gone to either non-detained courts mm-hmm. or the mixed courts, the, some of the courts that can handle some of the non-detained and some of the detained cases. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think there's been anybody that wasn't somehow in the system who went to a detained court necessarily. All right. Well, you know, before we go, I, I would love to get your thoughts on, you know, is are there some things that, that we can do? Are there some pathways to create a little bit more justice or equity um, or you know, is it a situation where we just got to kind of keep sending the EMTs to the car crashes and there's nothing else we can really do? I mean, what are y'all's thoughts having been in this? I mean, now a few different presidencies um, and just seeing how things can shift from one to another. What do, what do we got on the horizon? <laughs> and is it like purely a federal policy issue in a sense? Um, I mean, there is the federal policy issue aspect. And so a big part of this, it's it's governed by the feds, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of the pushback that we get at the state level is we have no control, mm-hmm. right? We, even if we look at it and try to build that same coalition that worked on the criminal justice reform and that were very pro and ended up passing this in a very red state, mm-hmm. 
that a big push on that was economics, mm-hmm. right? It's not, it doesn't make economic sense for the state to pay so much to detain folks with low level crimes. In this setting, the state is receiving federal funds. Mm-hmm. They're getting, the state is getting paid for detaining immigrants. Mm-hmm. So the economic aspect that brought in a lot of legislate, legislators isn't going to bring them in. Right. And so that argument's not there. Um, one, of the, one of the pushes that's happening nationwide is trying to get local, um, local municipalities and states to fund representation. Mm-hmm. And so it happened in New York um, and it, it happened in you know California, it's happened in Colorado. There are various places around the country that have it funded either at the local level or at the statewide level. And that one just gets more people into court and more eyes on it, shines the, sun's, the sunlight on it, lets mm-hmm. people know what's going on, people become aware of it. Um, and then the other big thing that's happening is ending, which can be done at the state level, having states and contracts and saying, we're not going to have any private prisons, mm-hmm. right? Whether it be for immigration or for, um, or for criminal, mm-hmm. we're, not, we're not going to work with private prisons. It's going to either be run by the state or by the federal government, mm-hmm. um, which President Biden left, specifically left out immigration from his right. executive order on ending federal prisons with the federal um, criminal charges. And so... Those types of movements are happening, and it's if we look at it from something like the um, marriage equality type of process that happened in the past, where you go state by state, locality by locality, and like mm-hmm. eventually you get enough of a of a majority to push it through. That's kind of the approach that some folks are taking. There's the people that are just going to the top and saying like, "No, pass legislation, fix this." Yeah. Um, there's multiple approaches taking place. Louisiana is one of those places where people are being sent from to. So places that have shut down detention centers, a lot of those folks are being sent to Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And so one of the approaches that we like to take is getting those people and saying, hey, send the resources down too. send the attention, send the resources, send the, the spotlight so that people are aware of what's happening. Mm-hmm. And you can get the fight, not just here, but around the world, around the country, because right. we need 51 senators. We don't necessarily need Cassidy and Kennedy. Yeah. We need 51 senators. Right. It's interesting that, like, you know, obviously the root of all this is this kind of concept, this given that, like, we can tell people, like, not, you can't come here, right? Like, you can't come. And it's, it, to, and to me, it makes as much sense as, let's say, people in Louisiana saying, nobody from Arkansas can move here. Now, you might say that out of spite or whatever, but you'd be like, what is the purpose of that? Like, what are you actually accomplishing? Like, what what is the good? Like, that's just like dumb. Like, I think everyone would agree that's protecting our way of life. Oh, yeah, because we don't like Arkansas people. Okay, it's not this Arkansas. Um, But, you know, but whatever. Right. Like California says no one from Nevada, you know, just like these borders are so arbitrary and like, you know, maybe part of what we need is some some smart and not so smart people in plain terms to be able to say like you you don't lose something by somebody moving to your town yeah. you know i mean here we have like you know the the issue of like you know gentrification gentrification or not cities gaining or losing population and you know the suburbs and where the but in the end like we have a very complex and diverse kind of social economic system across the globe and then to sort of try to pick out these borders and say to the degree of no, that we're going to put you in a cage. To me, the given has to sort of adjust. 
Like, why do we think that it's a good thing to keep people out of this country when for so many years it was trying to get people in this country? Well, because the people that got into the country and want to stay in power is, yeah. are the ones making the decisions. Well, you know, if they want to stay in power, then they got to be just responsive to the, to the people, you know? I mean, Rose, do you have any thoughts on, uh, on paths forward? I mean, are we uh, are we waiting on a uh, on AOC to be president or something? <laughs> I mean, Kira, are we waiting on Kira? Oh well, AOC is my president for the record. <laughs> That's the world I live in over here. She's, got, she's getting married now, though, so your chance <laughs> of going to her and I's wedding is pretty slim. <laughs> <laughs> my condolences. So. Um, uh, yeah, every all of the policy pushes and electing um, people who have uh, who do not have this scarcity mentality and instead are operating from a place of expansiveness and opportunity for all people, um, you know, American citizens, immigrants. Um, changing our economic system is so important. Like everything that we talk about in the abolition context just applies here 100%. So in addition to things like getting everybody lawyers, um, making the system more transparent and um, less prejudicial, whether that be, you know, making immigration court into Article Three courts or changing judges, um, changing the landscape of legal access, like all of these multi-pronged factors are really important, but I, I fully agree with what Omero said about economics because you're, you're never going to achieve abolition and, you know, freedom and, and economic viability for everyone as long as you're dependent on the prison industrial complex. And like as everybody in this room and probably everybody listening knows, there's such a deep reliance, especially here in the Deep South, on the carceral state as an economic driver. So without economic alternatives, um, to, to for the the <laughs> prison industrial complex and now ICE detention, especially in Louisiana, provides people with so many jobs. Right, there's nine places in in Louisiana, a mix of separate ICE facilities and mixed criminal and ICE facilities, providing jobs to so many people in really small towns, and you know the the folks who are working there. Are, are not necessarily, you know, buying all, all of them, not necessarily like buying into this like threatening replacement theory narrative, but just this is the only job they can get to support themselves and their family. So there have to be, there has to be a focus on economic alternatives mm -hmm. to working in the prison industrial complex, because if you have other jobs available or, or, or communities of support, right? Like if we're divesting even from, the capitalistic model and and trying to build communities of support for for everyone in these rural places. If there are if there are real alternatives, then the argument for um, like having quote unquote ice beds and and having immigration detention. Um, the the practical aspect of it really goes away. I I 
it's it's not to say it's all economics because of course it's racism and xenophobia and, and entrenched policy and people trying to keep the power where the power has always been um you know from colonial times right because this this the people who are who are great believers in in replacement theory or um keeping immigrants out right are largely not the original inhabitants of this land anyway mm-hmm. um so I, I think there's just a lot of fear and, and entrenched beliefs and that's part of it, but it's also the practical aspect. Um, like so many of my clients have walked away from immigration detention with this understanding that it's it's all about money. <laughs> like it's all about money and profit for some, but just getting by for others. And when they have conversation, they have honest conversations with the the those who can speak English um with the the guards and the detention centers and everything saying like how can you work here seeing what what's be, what's being done to us and how we're being treated and um the answer is always like look i i just need to make a living i just need my job so we have to also focus on um providing alternatives as a practical measure because it's such a huge part of why this is happening and i think that's really in line with an abolitionist vision too yeah, and the, you know, the irony is if you look at what a lot of people in America are being locked up for, which is, you know, engaging in a business which is illegal as drug sales, um, and the people who are who feel that that was their only option to survive, you know, present company, well, myself, I won't put you all in the myself included at a point in my life, you know, and, and, and then there's people who, and it could be family members, could be friends, who children who rely upon that income the same way a prison guard relies, you know, and their family relies on that income. And so they become complicit in the industry as well, you know, not with any ill intention, but everyone's just trying to get by. And so here we have, you know, these, these, you know, like competing industries, which serve to kind of keep both groups of people like locked into a position in history, which is very oppressive for both. And it reminds me of, um, you know, the, uh, the Gilded Age billionaire guy, Jay Gould, um, saying once that, that I can pay half the working class to kill the other half. And so I feel like, you know, the modern iteration of that is paying half the working class to lock up the other half. And that's what we're really up against. Um, but I'm really glad that, you know, to, to bring you guys in to talk about something that's really important in this you know, hotbed of incarceration known as Louisiana, which, you know, we all find ourselves here doing the best we can. Um, thanks for coming on down to the HQ uh, for those that could. And, um, you know, shout out to Mike. And I am DJ Bruja, and we're going to say go Celtics and just chill for the next episode. Peace. We need each other. Wake up now.